The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That is gracebible.faith. So only a few months ago, we celebrated a special landmark in the life of Grace Bible Church. It was the um, fifth year anniversary and five years since that time that this fellowship came together in a hotel meeting room across town. Uh, some of us were there as supporting guests. Others, such as the Passes, the Neals, and the Duvalls, were there as founding members. And to memorialize that moment, we looked back at some candid pictures and even a group shot. So we put together a video. We could say, like, I remember that. The, even the, the snack time, it was, it was smaller, but it, it was there. And we saw the, the time of fellowship, the time of teaching, the time of seeing things that we've continued to pattern through the present day, uh, obviously from those who were um, here initially to those who have I've been assimilated and joined this fellowship, but there was those, again, the pictures, there were opportunities to reflect on, to see, to remember, reminding us of those, um, the, again, the, the nature of the, the foundations of this journey. And because many of us are still here, we can share with each other and with those who have since come into this fellowship various details of that day, the days and history that also soon fall thereafter. So again, some of us can talk about that day. We were there, we were visiting, and then others could say, well, but I remember when, the, the Sunday we found out we got booted out and because mattresses, and, and then in the Neal's house, and then this house, and then, then this, et cetera, and we end up finally here. So there's a journey and an experience, and that can be testified to, and there's a sweetness to it. And that's why when we do things like a video, somebody might look at it and be like, okay, but others are like, oh, yeah, that, that's part of our story. And so we remember these things. And perhaps some might be drawn to even the, the special joy that accompanies new beginnings. I think there's some people that are even, they enjoy church plants and they enjoy uh, the beginning of things, but maybe they're going to go to the next beginning because there's just an attraction to that. Um, because again, some people really enjoy new beginnings, especially as the beginning of a new venture often expresses its ideals most clearly as nothing has challenged them yet. And you can think about that with even um, young couples or even somebody beginning a new job. The, the ideals, it's not that they aren't accurate or that they're not a, a good representation or that they won't continue on, but in that moment, they just haven't been tested. They, nothing has challenged them, and so there's this excitement about it. And because of this, it's not uncommon, again, for people to envy or even long for those early days. I remember when we were in the hotel room, you know, and I remember when, yeah... The, the Neil's living room and the old house. Uh, I remember, and you could just, or the driveway. You know, the cicadas, the, the, the humming was um, therapeutic. Um, it was the disaster for audiovisual efforts, but nevertheless, it was, you know, those were fun times. They're sweet times, and there's something to be said for that. But you're also in that, that, that pining for those old days, you're missing something. You're missing the beauty that seasoning through struggle and growth provides. That's what somebody really misses when they, even when they come to a wedding, there's a sweetness to it, but there's a greater sweetness, obviously, I would argue, for those who are celebrating not their wedding day, as, as magnificent as that is, but maybe their 40th or 50th anniversary, because they've proven it works, and, and they've, they've walked through things, and the promises that were made there have endured. And so when you pine for this longing in old days, you're missing the superior blessing of maturity. Notably, a maturity that has not only observed their ideals and great ambitions challenged, but they're bearing up under these challenges. And perhaps these come out, you know, things come out differently than anticipated. That's often the case. But if faithful, they're all the better for it. Now, as joyful and ambitious as it was, 
I don't know that anyone, anyone would want us to, to, to freeze time and go back to that inaugural Sunday. So May 13th, 2018 may have been a wonderful day for you. you know, good Mother's Day, for, perhaps. But I don't know anybody that wanna, would want to lock us in on that day and that time. But I can think of at least two persons who, and I, I gave them a heads up a little bit ago, that certainly would not want to lock in on that day and freeze time. And one of them was Gideon. I told him the four-year, and I think he's probably like, oh, no. I, I said, you're going to be in an illustration, but it's going to be okay. And Hannah, I couldn't warn her. But nevertheless, those are two people I think about. They, they were there, and I don't think they would want to lock time in on that day. I don't think they would want to say, yeah, let's go back to May 13th, 2018. Because Gideon, he was just a, a, a tiny little guy. He wasn't, wasn't the Gideon that we're experiencing today. He was sucking his fingers, being carried around, cruising in strollers. There's no way he wants to go back to that. Not now. He's just come too far. He is writing out passages for me, and he's doing very well with that, memorizing things, engaging us in conversation. That, that's not what we experienced on May 13th, 2018. That's a different Gideon, and so we're grateful that there's been growth and maturity and progress. And Hannah, Hannah was still a Neil. Uh, Benjamin was nowhere on the radar, much less the expectation of their son's forthcoming birth. That You think she's going to want to roll things back? No way. There's no way she wants to go back to that day. Not now. She's come too far to enjoy the sweet struggles and joys of maturity and progress. And so we can appreciate those early days, but we need not overly romanticize them. They were good and laid a robust and joyful foundation, but their role was to do just that, to lay a foundation. Now, I share of our early church experience with a view to the early church's experience as we've recorded not through pictures, but through the book of Acts. And among the beloved memories was their boldness, their confidence to speak the word of God, as we see an example of in chapter 4. So I'm going going to give our attention for just a little bit. I'm going to read Acts 4, 1 through 31. So follow either in your copy of the scriptures or on the screen here. So we read as follows. Now as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly agitated because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Now it happened that on the next day their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas, the high priest, was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. And when they had placed them in their midst, they began to inquire, By what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we were being examined today for a good deed done to a sick man, as to how this man has been saved from his sickness, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which which was rejected by you, the builders, but which came... Uh, which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and comprehended that they were uneducated and ordinary men, they were marveling and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they began to confer with one another, saying, What should we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy sign has happened through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But lest it spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. 
But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to hear you rather than God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about that which we have heard, seen and heard. And when they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis in which to punish them. On account, of the people, on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old in whom the sign of healing had occurred. So when they were released, they were sent to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Master, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, the, your servant, said, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city there was gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand, excuse me, your hand and your purpose predestined, and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats, and grant that your slaves may speak your word with all confidence." While you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders happen through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed earnestly, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with confidence. Now, I plainly uh, tried to draw some things out for you as we read. I a little bit almost stuttered trying to audibly draw it out because there's, I know there's a comma and not a pause, but but I wanted to, to, to draw your attention to that confidence. They're speaking with confidence, confidence about the things of the Lord, confidence about the resurrected Lord. But take note of the confidence that Peter and John exemplified that the church prayed to experience. They, they even pray for that. Lord, give us the, the confidence to declare your word. And that, that was, again, part of their testimony, the, the confidence of their leadership proclaiming Christ resurrected, the, the praying of the church that we would proclaim Christ resurrected Again, that was part of their story, part of the early church, part of what we look at and say, wow, weren't those days precious? And they were. You, you ought not to look back and be like, well, boy, they don't know what's coming. No, it is precious. Now let's advance many, many years later down the road, and we have the testimony of the church having swelled beyond the borders of Jerusalem in this original fellowship. They're no longer in these early years of zeal and ideals. That could be argued, well, you know, that was a, was a really charged moment as it were but rather they're seasoned with maturity and growth now a maturity and growth that has known struggles challenges and joy but what of their confidence did their confidence hold up notably what of their confidence when the chains were no longer just temporary because in this context they were detained very briefly oh, there's no reasons to hold you so we'll let you go but what about when you're detained indefinitely and nobody can figure out what to hold you on but they're going to continue detaining you for years and years and years when the chains have been worn for years and taking um, them not only before religious tribunals anymore but now all the way up the chain to caesar himself what happens of that confidence well paul tells us does he not yeah he does, right here in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, where he writes, Now I want you to know, brothers, that my circumstances, what were the nature of his circumstances, being in chains for going on three, four years now at least, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my chains in Christ have become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord because of my chains, when we spent a good bit of time focusing on that last week, 
they become confident because of his chains, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me affliction in my chains. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Now, what did we observe here? Well, working through this passage last week, we observed that while Paul was chained, while he was restricted and lacked the advantage of freedom, the gospel itself remained unrestrained and was powerfully working through its confident declaration by both Paul and many brothers. But there within, this testimony was a most peculiar, if not distressing element. And if, if it wasn't both peculiar and distressing, then I smoothed something over that I never meant to smooth over. I hope that you left bothered by the fact that you have some of those who were broadly identified as brothers who were genuinely preaching Christ, but were doing so with malice intent toward Paul. That's, I can't smooth that over. I can't say, well, you have to understand the historical context or the nature of what was happening. No, it's peculiar and, and terrible. They were preaching Christ, genuinely, faithfully, clearly preaching Christ, and yet doing so with malice intent toward Paul. Again, a conduct most unbecoming of any who were genuinely in Christ and that put their testimony and standing um, as questionable at best. So again, we're going to take the Lord's Supper later today, and if there was somebody that we had news of that were uh, preaching Christ faithfully, but they were doing so with the intent of causing one of us harm, we'd probably say, you know what? Let it pass. You are not in good standing. And your reputation and your standing um, before the Lord is at best questionable. We don't know your heart, but we do know that there's some incredible inconsistencies here. However, this was not the most striking element to this portion of Paul's progress report. Rather, what was perhaps even more surprising than hearing that brothers were preaching Christ with malice motives toward Paul was his response. That was extraordinary. That was almost uh, just incredible, actually, quite incredible. Because how does he respond? He responds with an eruption of joy that Christ is being preached no matter what the man or the motive. Christ is being preached, and, this, and in this, he rejoiced. That has a lot to say about Paul and what Paul thinks of the gospel and what Paul thinks about Christ and what think Paul thinks about Christ being exalted made much of. Now, we took a significant measure of time last week to develop this, so I'll regard this as sufficient review for now with one edition of an extended quote from Charles Erdman that I felt summarizes the matter well. He stated, quote, Paul was large enough to seize upon the salient point in the situation. He did not trouble himself too greatly about the aims and errors and faults of other men. Above all their contending voices, he heard the name of Christ. With all that was false and unkind in their preaching, he caught the great notes of the glorious gospel. No matter what was in their hearts, the gospel was on their lips. By friend and foe alike, the gospel was being proclaimed in Rome. Therein, Paul rejoiced. And now this brings us to the next portion of Paul's progress report, a small portion of the text that immediately builds off of what has just been worked through. Now, this portion of the text is distinct, but plainly advances what's preceded it, a, a matter that is perhaps most obvious by Paul's emphasis on rejoicing. 
So he closed his report of the gospel's magnificent advancement with his rejoicing in Christ being preached. That's how he kind of brings that first portion of the testimony to a a climatic close, not a full close, but a close for this portion, so that he he rejoices that it's Christ who's being preached and then opens his report of his confident salvation and Christ's magnification with the anticipation of yet more rejoicing to come. So in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. And so he finishes, Christ is being proclaimed, no matter the, the man or the motive, and with a view to my salvation, my deliverance, and Christ's magnification, I'm again anticipating more joy. So again, he states, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my salvation through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. So once more, we've established that Paul continues to affirm his great joy in this context of the gospel advancing, and now also with his anticipated salvation and Christ's magnification. So again, why is he joyful? Christ is being declared or proclaimed. Why is he joyful? Because he knows there's a forthcoming deliverance, a salvation, and with that, Christ's magnification. Again, a matter that was made emphatic by how he opened this next statement of, yes, and I will rejoice. And we come to this conclusion. Why do you say it's emphatic? Is it just because you want to develop an argument here? Well, no, we come to this conclusion because Paul uses a term that was often expressed as a contrasting conjunction. And so I was wrestling with that. Well, no, it's but I will rejoice. So it's just, he's, a, he's pivoting, as it were. But no, actually, the nature of the structure is that when this conjunction is used with another one of, the, of a different nature, it was used to express emphasis over contrast. And so instead of contrasting, he's emphasizing, he's pushing even more. So Christ is preached, I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. So it's not a, okay, next part of the testimony, but a a big push. I'm going to continue to rejoice. So he's not introducing a new matter of rejoicing, but is advancing and emphasizing that that which has already been established in our prior text, a matter that will help us understand the nature of his salvation and in such also the nature of his joy. And it's to this salvation that will now give our attention, picking up with Paul's confident affirmation where he again states, quote, for I know that this will turn out for my salvation through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, because Paul stated that this, so this, this will turn out or result in his salvation or deliverance, it's very important to understand what this is. What is this? And then to wrestle through it, how, how it contributed to Paul's salvation. And so I'm going to propose a conclusion here regarding this, and I'm holding my conclusion this time with a little bit more of a loose grip. Um, I try to be charitable. I try to be humble about things, but I have conviction about what I teach. I wrestle through it, struggle with it, try to understand it, try to put it to action, and then try to declare it clearly. But sometimes I I recognize, boy, I want to hold it tight, but a little bit of a looser grip. And I'll explain why in just a moment, because... Really, while I've done my best to resolve these things and to see enough consistency and continuity to be sufficiently content for now, and I do look for that, consistency and continuity. I'm not looking just to teach two verses. I'm looking to teach Philippians. I have to be mindful. What was 112 to 18? What was 1, 1 through 11? What's 121 through the rest of the chapter? How's chapter 2, 3, and 4 fit together with this? And I think there's a good consistency there. And I'm content with that. And I'm especially aware, though, that here... Um, really more time, more prayer, more struggling, more wrestling, it might modify my conclusions because 
this is so intimately knit to what follows. I want to be careful. I think it fits. I think it fits well. But as we advance further down the road, I'm mindful I may have to, I may have to come back and say, okay, this is more clear now. So that's just part of the walking together and working through a whole book. I prefer to speak with more firmness to my conviction, but again, this was a uniquely challenging passage. And you might think, why? It's just two verses, and it looks very straightforward. Maybe by the end, it will be challenging for you. But nevertheless, it was a challenging one. So my proposal here is this, is that this is this. This is very important as this establishes the nature of Paul's discourse here, as this will turn out for his salvation. So again, you need to get what this is because it's going to talk about what his salvation is, which informs his joy and ultimately reform Christ's magnification. So you got to get what this is. So what, is, what was this? Well, I would conclude that this was Christ being proclaimed. It's clearly, I would argue, a view back to what he just talked about, Christ being proclaimed. How was he proclaimed? By those who were emboldened and those who were faithful and those who were not. But that's what this is, Christ being proclaimed. Therefore, it was Christ being proclaimed that would turn out for Paul's salvation, which was expressed here as his preservation from shame by the magnification of Christ and his body by life or by death. And this conclusion ties together with what is preceded and what follows, including the Philippians' own experiences that he doesn't get to till the end of the chapter. So, the first and preceding element here was the testimony of the gospel advancing in no small part by the preaching of it by a range of persons. That was 12 through 18. So that's what sets us up for this. The preaching of the gospel, the gospel advancing by the range of persons, including those who were seeking Paul's harm, and that was um, and those who were faithful, verses 12 through 18. Then we have a bit of a bridge here where Paul spoke to magnifying Christ in his body by life or by death here in verses 19 and 20. So I want you to see how this fits. I'm trying to show you This is how we're weaving it together. We're not just making declarations and statements about this is what it means. We're saying this is what it means in view of what's before, what's here, what's after. So this, again, being Christ being proclaimed by an assortment of persons, this, namely the declaration of Christ, will ultimately lead to Paul's salvation. What's the nature of his salvation? It's deliverance from shame and the magnification of Christ. So we have those who declare Christ. We have Paul's testimony that Christ will be magnified in him. He then directed um, his attention to the Philippians and charged them to live a life of gospel faithfulness. This is where we're heading, one in which there's a clear emphasis on unity. Remember, from the very outset of the book, I've tried to press that this is a book focusing on unity of mind in the Lord. And we're going to see that developed as he engages the Philippians directly um, in the next week, two, three weeks, whatever it will be. So there's a clear emphasis on unity, and that also speaks to their own experiences with their opponents. So they also have opponents. Are they the same opponents? Paul's in Rome, they're in Philippi. Not the same opponents, but maybe of a like nature. So we have a passage spanning from verses 21 through, 20 th- uh, through 30 that cover those things. Again, Paul's engagement to include their gospel faithfulness, their unity, and their dealing with their own opponents. And then here in this context of opponents, Paul also addressed the Philippians' salvation while drawing attention to their struggles. Ah, So we have like language, not just like language, same term. Paul, preaching Christ, some do it from malice motive. They would be opponents. Something's going to lead to my salvation. Fast forward, Philippians, gospel faithfulness, unity of mind and conduct. You also have opponents, and there will be a salvation for you as well. So he states in verse 28, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. So I would argue 
These struggles were stated to be, again, of a like nature to Paul's own, possibly a reflection of a fractious approaches to preaching Christ. Now, I want to be careful here. If you read enough commentators or maybe listen to enough people, they, people are consistently looking for who's the bad guy in Philippians? Who's the bad guy? Oh, the church, they just can't get their act together. Well, we've, we've established, and it was even prayed about this morning, that this is a good church, but the testimony is a good church that it could always do better. But it does appear that there were some, whether they be mixed among them or otherwise, that were preaching Christ with some ulterior motive, as it were, or deficient motive, or, or something of that nature, because it was a like opponent. Now, who they were, we're a bit left in the dark on that. And that's okay. We can be left there and continue on ourselves. So we have those uh, possibly fractious approaches to preaching Christ. Again, a conclusion that I'm willing to entertain because of Paul stating, quote, having the same struggle which you saw in me and now here to be in me. What's the struggle he's just talked about? Christ is proclaimed. It's proclaimed by a variety of persons. A statement that immediately yielded to chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, a chapter that is beloved by many of us, and perhaps there's probably different relationships different people have with Philippians. You have the group that's like, uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yay! You have the work out your salvation. Then you have also the the, the great esteeming of the, the humility and exaltation of Christ. Well, that's where we are in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. A statement that, um, about their salvation from a like opponent, like struggle, and that yields to chapter 2, 1 through 11, the, to the intensive treatment on humble unity, as we observed in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And as you know, this intensive treatment on humble unity climaxes with what? Christ being magnified. Okay, so what's the, what's the solution? I would argue, what's the solution to these opponents? Unity of mind in the Lord. What are the Philippians dealing with? The need for unity of mind in the Lord. Okay, Paul, but unpack it. Chapter 2, unity of mind in the Lord by giving you the preeminent example of the humility of Christ with a view to his exaltation. And then what happens? What happens at the very end of that section? Well, he's going to go on to speak one final time to the matter of salvation. Same term, last time in the book. Paul's salvation, the Philippian salvation, then he's going to use that term for salvation once more in verses 2, 12 to 13. A salvation that's to be labored in. What do we call that? We, we refer that to as our sanctification. We're working out our salvation, but it is a salvation that's being referenced here. So it's sanctification that pursues what? A humble unity of mind in the Lord. Well, that's because that's your big thrust for the book, David, and that's what you've been cultivating. No, that's what 2, 1 through 11 brought you to. Why did it bring you there? Because Paul's opponents, the Philippians have opponents, and what's the resolution? Humility of mind, unity of mind in the Lord. What's the perfect example? Christ, Christ humility, Christ exaltation, and then work out your salvation in fear and trembling, for it's God who's at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So that salvation is working itself out. A humble unity of mind that all of their opponents failed to pursue. That's what distinguishes them. Do you think you're going to be preaching Christ and opposing Paul if you have a humility of mind, a unity of mind in the Lord? No, absolutely not. So a a humble unity of mind that's absolutely essential to those not only who want to be faithful, but specifically be faithful in magnifying Christ, which was also just put on display. Paul's going to talk about it. I'm going to magnify Christ. But what has he done? He's talked about Christ's perfect exaltation with every knee bowing and declaring him as Lord. Therefore, in view of this, I'm persuaded at this time that that leads to this. What is that in this? That being Christ is proclaimed and this being Christ is magnified. 
And in this, Paul's salvation is a deliverance from the shame that his opponents would seek to impute upon him, and that is inconsistent with the exaltation of Christ. So again, this is about Christ being proclaimed, and in such, that yielding to Christ being magnified. And in that, Paul's salvation will be experienced. What's the nature of his salvation? It's a deliverance from the shame of his opponents who would seek to impute upon him that which is inconsistent with the exaltation of Christ. Now, I think I've made a reasonable case. I hope that was reasonable enough to follow, but I think I've made a reasonable case for the consistency and continuity of my conclusion here. I don't want to just throw out, I think this is what it means. I want you to see it developed from Philippians. But we need to look more closely now at its own elements. So I give a big sweep of an argument. Now let's narrow our focus on the text proper. And the next matter we need to give attention to here is not only the antecedent and larger development of this, but also the phrase of which this is a part of, as it's the phrase that gives the passage its clear direction. So we have Paul stating here, quote, this will turn out for my salvation. That's going to set the trajectory for everything that follows. It's very important that we understand it. It's a phrase that was not unique to Paul, but one that reaches all the way back to the time of the patriarchs. It was a statement made by no one less than Job. And while Paul does not overtly express that he's quoting the scriptures here, so sometimes in the text, if you noticed earlier in our reading from Acts, there were all caps in certain portions of the text, certain passages they'll capitalize to say Old Testament reference, Old Testament quote. Different translations will try to draw that out for us. And Paul doesn't overtly say, hey, I'm quoting the scriptures here, I'm quoting Job, but the line is verbatim in his Greek as what is observed in the Septuagint or the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures that were commonly used and cited throughout the New Testament. It's the same exact wording of that phrase here as what Job said in Job chapter 13. Now, that being said, I'm sympathetic to the skeptic here. Um, I, I, I can look at something and know it's true and still want to be proven it's true. Not to be antagonistic, but that's part of my wrestling with understanding and clarity and challenging it to make sure I, I drew, truly understand it. So I'm sympathetic to someone saying, well, Job happened to say it. I mean, goodness gracious, who else probably said it if you look hard enough? After all, the phrase, this will turn out for my salvation, was not one that Paul would necessarily have had to seek out a source for. It's, it's language that we would quite naturally associate with Paul and his writing. But if he was choosing to incorporate a line from Job 13, then perhaps we ought to consider why. So it could just be that, well, that language happens to be of an exact nature. You know, a phrase. Well, things, you know, maybe that happens. The probability, it's probably pretty decent. But if he's looking back to Job 13, I think we really are pressed to say, well, why? He's not expositing Job 13 but he appears to be leaning from and drawing from it. And we're going to do just that in a moment. But first, I want to consider this nature of Paul's salvation. Or some of your translations may express it, his deliverance. That's the nature of salvation, deliverance. Now, while there could be a, a variety of proposed conclusions as to the nature of Paul's salvation here, and there are lots of opinions and strong opinions, I would reduce our options to four of them here. Maybe they're not the best ones, but they're the four I'm going to provide for you and I think give us reasonable grounds to negotiate this territory. So option one, the salvation would be this preaching of Christ supports Paul's legal case and will prove to be part of his vindication before man as he is acquitted by Caesar. So this is effectively a salvation from his chains. 
that he's looking to being delivered. He's looking being rescued. He's looking to the point where I'm not going to be a prisoner anymore. And you might think, well, no, salvation, that salvation, salvation, but salvation is deliverance. It just happens to have different applications. Obviously, we think of redemption from our sins. I, I remember when I was in high school, there was uh, two young men that were involved in a, a car wreck on the way to school, and it was not a good wreck. And There's not a good wreck. Let me be clear about that. It was but a particularly bad one and dangerous. I think the, the vehicle had rolled and whatnot. And we were told oh, they were, they were, um, that God saved them. And that was kind of the language that someone used. And so everybody's like, wow. They, we didn't know about the wreck. We thought that they had come to faith because both of them were they're not, they weren't the best company. But no, it was God saved them in the sense it spared them. And so we, we recognize that language can be expressed in a range of ways. So that's option one, that delivered from his chains. Options two, or option two, the preaching of Christ rescues him from the shame of his malicious opponents. So remember, those who preach Christ with malice intent. Option three, this preaching of Christ sees Paul vindicated without shame before God. So you know what? No matter what shame he uh, receives or, or bears up under through this natural life, he will stand before God and he will stand without shame. He will be delivered from that shame. And then option four, this preaching of Christ rescues him from the shame of his malicious opponents and vindicates him before God. And I would say this fourth option effectively being a combination of two and three. Now, I'm least persuaded by option one. There's some really good argument for it, and I'm actually going to explore some of it with you because I don't like to just knock something over and be like, ha it was a bad option. No, it's actually a really good option. It's something that good men have wrestled through, and it's reasonable. But I think it's good, but we could do better in terms of even our options. So Paul, he does appear to have a very high degree of confidence about his case's final adjudication. Um, you know, our system is that... Uh, you have the option usually between a jury trial, bench trial, but by constitutional right, you have right to stand before a jury of your peers. And you might think like, oh, I don't know if that's good or bad because, well, you never know what a jury's going to do. And so you, you, you might have a lot of good confidence that it's going to go your way and you get a weird jury. It goes a different way. Paul has to stand before Caesar. Caesar's going to make the decision. But nevertheless, he appears to have a very high confidence that He's soon to be delivered, soon to have his chains removed. Is it that deliverance he's talking about? I don't think so, but let's at least explore the matter. So it appears that this, now, I've just qualified that, but then you get to 20 and 21, you're like, well, wait a second. Is that the nature of his language? Well, let's look at it. According to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You might be like, well, what, that just goes to your whole argument. He's just, you know, could go either way. Live or die, either, either way, it's, it's gain. Christ is exalted. That's true, but let's continue. Those matters have to be balanced with the engaging of this uh, intriguing debate with himself, as it were, about the advantages that follow both life and death offer him and the Philippians in verses 22 through 26. So we have kind of a, a debate that he's having with himself, but expressing toward the Philippians and what's the nature of it. Um, it's as though he has some discretion in this matter. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know what I will choose, but I am hard-pressed between the two. That sounds like he's making, he's got an option on the table here, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And convinced of this, I know that I will remain on, continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, 
so that your reason for boasting may abound in Christ Jesus in me through my coming to you again. I know I'll continue, and I'm planning on coming back to you. That sounds like a man that is looking at the, the pardon day here. And this he spoke to the anticipation, and after this he spoke to the anticipation of receiving reports about them. Reports that, you know, come to the living. Only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about your circumstances, that you are standing firm in, the, in one spirit, with one mind, contending together for the faith of the gospel. Now you could argue, well, yeah, but... He could get reports up until the time of his uh, final adjudication, as it were, and final uh, closure of his case. But then he also went on in chapter 2 to say some other things. And finally, when he spoke with, about the return of Epaphroditus and the sending of Timothy, he also shared of his plans to come as well. Therefore, I hope to send him, Epaphroditus, immediately as I, as I evaluate my own circumstances, and I'm confident in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. He doesn't leave room, I mean, I'd argue he does leave room for, you know, it may not go as planned. He's been down that road. But it pretty plainly sounds like he thinks he's not going to be incarcerated very long. And that doesn't mean by death, but likely by life and freedom. Again, he just does not appear to have the disposition of one who's not confident of his being cleared and freed soon. So option one sounds fairly reasonable. And perhaps we should even consider folding it into option four, making it an all-of-the-above option, because it would appear to have some merit to it, and I'm sympathetic to that. And to add to this, perhaps we should also consider the intensive emphasis he has on his chains up to this point, but not again thereafter. So in chapter 1, verse 7, it was, For it is only right for me to think this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my chains... And the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are fellow partakers with me in this grace. And then in verse 12 through 14, he states, Now I want you, brothers, that, uh, to know, I want you to know, brothers, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my chains in Christ have become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord because of my chains, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. And then in verse 17, he writes, The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me affliction in my chains. So it's chains and chains and chains and chains. But then he gets to this verse, and what does he do? No more chains. He does not speak of chains again for the duration of the letter. He speaks only of his plans and the Philippians' care for him, matters that could be expressed in any number of contexts, but not likely by a man in chains. So again, there's a reasonable argument to be made for this, uh, for this option, for this salvation from his chains. Chains that were a significant matter of attention up until this point, but not again hereafter. But what do we do with Paul using like language for the Philippians? Their salvation. They're not in chains. Notably, again, the same term for salvation in a context in which he stated that they were experiencing suffering in the same way as he was suffering himself. Remember verses 27 to 30, only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about your circumstances that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, contending together for the faith of the gospel and no way alarmed by your opponents. So they also have opponents, maybe they're of a different nature, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation, deliverance for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. So they're suffering from their opponents, having the same struggle which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. 
They know he's in chains, but I don't think that's what he's paralleling there. And if that's not what he's paralleling, and that's not the salvation that he's referring to for them, I would argue probably that's not the salvation that he's talking about for himself either. So yes, he may know deliverance. And that would be great. It, it is good. It's very good because there's continued progress that comes after that. Progress of a nature that's helpful to have when you're not in chains. But it's different, I would argue. Different salvation. So perhaps their salvation was also of a like nature as Paul's salvation, meaning that their deliverance was of a like nature delivery that would have excluded being rescued from chains. I don't think the whole church was chained up, as it were. And so again, I may be open to elements of option one that this preaching of Christ supported Paul's legal case and would prove to be part of his vindication before man as he was acquitted by Caesar. But I really want to press that there are better choices available to us. And so we might be like, why did you give so much attention to that? Because it sets up a good contrast to say, well, then if that was good and there's something better, what's better? Well, Better choices that will make more sense of Paul's emphatic language, his confidence, his giving of himself in service, as he stated in our next verse. Something's going to drive him. This salvation's going to really uh, ignite a, a fire in him, as it were, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything. But with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. So, how are we going to resolve? What is the nature of this salvation? What is the nature of this salvation that has produced in him such an earnest expectation, such a, a confidence that he's not going to be put to shame anything? If it wasn't the shame of chains, which he, he wasn't ashamed of. And I know later in a subsequent arrest, a subsequent imprisonment, he's going to tell Timothy, don't be ashamed of my chains. I don't think that's his concern here. And I also would argue that the, the boldness of magnifying Christ, it's going to, all these things that are pressing us to, to some other resolution about what the nature of his salvation is. And I think we find the resolution in his view, again, to Job 13. But first, let's look at the language here of verse 20, beginning with, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything. As stated, Paul clearly has a very strong conviction in this matter of his salvation. Very strong. One that we will, uh, we've not fully resolved, but can plainly see that however it is resolved, he not only had an expectation and hope regarding its outcome, but it was an earnest one. He wasn't saying, boy, I, you know, like, I hope this is going to work out. No, this is a really firm confidence. And what was the nature of this resolve? It was that he would not be put to shame and that Christ would be magnified. Those are what he's driving to. That's what he's emphasizing, that he wouldn't be put to shame and that Christ would be exalted. Therefore, this was not a zero-sum matter or simply that he was just not going to be shamed. That's not what he's saying. He's not just saying, well, my deliverance is that I'm not shamed. That would be valuable. That, that'd be good. We, we'd be grateful for restoration of testimony, restoration of uh, reputation. But it goes beyond that. It's not just a, a neutralizing the, the, the matter of shame or no shame, but it advances to that Christ would be magnified. I won't be shamed and Christ will be magnified. And such is how we must view the salvation that he spoke to here, that it was inextricably bound up in Christ's magnification. So however it works, whatever the nature of the salvation is, it has a view to Christ being magnified. Now, I think a helpful question to pose here would be, what would have been maybe a, a source or perspective shame for Paul? Shame that he would be delivered from? Well, I think in view of the immediate context, we would have to include that those who were preaching Christ with malice intent 
preaching with the expectation of producing harm or tribulation for Paul would be a clear source of prospective shame. And remember, last week I said that we're not dismissing that. We're elevating a point of attention toward the preaching of the gospel, and in this I rejoice. But that doesn't mean he's like, and people are offending me? Wow, I didn't notice. He did notice. It was just that he's fixed on the proclamation of Christ. So again, I state this, recognizing how firmly we spoke to Paul's view past such matters. He looked past their offense of, of malice intent and to the glory of Christ being proclaimed. But esteeming Christ being preached over his own treatment does not make the matter of his poor treatment disappear or the shame that it may well introduce. He was, again, he wasn't aloof to these things like, oh, I didn't notice. It's just that that didn't matter. He was locked and fixed on Christ's proclaimed, and this I rejoice, but there's still the matter of the shame that they've introduced. So that would be one way to approach this matter of shame. And I think a reasonable one at that, a matter that will perhaps be more clear when we again look back to Job in a moment. But I also recognize that this is really a, it's a, it's a very broad statement, isn't it? Not to be put to shame in anything. Well, perhaps we should also consider the matter of this great esteem and joy as well, Christ being preached. And with this, we plainly recognize that the totality of Paul's life and work were, were bound up in the gospel. So I'm not going to be put to shame to anything. And in view of that, I'd say, well, help me understand the negotiating of the context. What was he driving at in the same context? It was Christ being preached. It was Christ being proclaimed. And really, if I had to summarize Paul, it would be Christ exaltation, Christ being declared. So let's think about that. And let's think about this. If the gospel is maligned, Paul has effectively also experienced an undue measure of shame. It's not like um, uh, Andre, there will be a certain point in the year and he'll come in with a Patrick Malone jersey. Probably. Probability is pretty good. And if somebody's like, oh, the Chiefs, they're... He might draw some measure of, of, of offense toward it. Some measure. Or... or um, Pastor Frank, if we were to say something of the Cardinals and their standing and, and, and whatnot. So Wednesday, I mentioned um, Mark McGuire and his home, home run record and whatnot. And could maybe take some uh, natural offense. Hey, th- I, that's who I've, I've supported. And I, I go and, and see and I cheer them on. So there could be a, a, a point of association with offense. But Paul's experience with the gospel wasn't that superficial, was it? It wasn't that, boy, you know, the gospel is really important to me. That was everything to Paul. And so if the gospel is assaulted, if Christ is made little, then that's a shame that Paul would have taken on as well. Or perhaps we should also uh, consider um, Paul's conviction to not judge himself, nor concern himself with how others judge him. We believe see this in 1 Corinthians 4, how he'd been, um, how he, he didn't even regard his own self. God judges me. And so um, maybe there was something there that could have introduced shame. Again, that he didn't judge himself nor concern himself with how others judged him had been maybe viewed as an opportunity to introduce shame by some, and so we could go on. But consider these three for a moment. So first, brothers who preached Christ with the intent of producing tribulation for Paul and his chains. That's, that's a potential shame. Another potential shame. Assaults on that which he gave his whole person to in sacrificial service, namely the gospel and the person and work of Christ. That could be an object of shame if that's maligned. And then third, the fact that he didn't worry himself with the petty valuations of men who demanded that their esteeming be made much of by way of their praise or their criticism. Maybe that was an opportunity for somebody to, to try to shame him. Look, look, he doesn't even, it doesn't even value the opinions of men. 
okay, that's, that's a good thing. Um, he lived as before God. So each of these were very much part of Paul's experiences and matters of perspective or actual shame toward him. But to this or any other shame, he responds with an absolute confidence, not a wishful desire, but an absolute confidence that he will be delivered from any such shame, as such was the nature of his salvation. And this is among the reasons that many have concluded that this salvation must be an eschatological salvation. They would say that, oh, we have a view to final deliverance by God as it will be a time of all such accounts being made right before God and the wrongful application of shame that was applied toward the righteous will be stripped away. And so there's an eschatological view. So it is salvation with with a big S, a a big deliverance, a final deliverance. The offenses toward the gospel will be resolved. The the offenses toward um, those who malign Paul will be resolved. The the um, offenses of how he values himself or evaluates himself, that'll all be resolved with an eschatological salvation. And I agree, there's likely a strong eschatological element to this salvation, but the deliverance from shame is only part of what is in view here as he also goes on to state that Christ will be magnified in his body. His natural person will bring glory to Christ now as always. Again, But that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. And I would argue for Christ to be exalted in his body by life or by death, that's an application that's rooted to the present, not only the end. Now, there's an eschatological view to it. I recognize that. There is a final deliverance. There is a full salvation. There is the removal of shame. But there's something even to this temporal sojourning as well. Otherwise, how do you tether the deliverance of shame and the magnification of Christ in his body by life or by death. That's a present experience. So there's a deliverance from shame and a magnification of Christ, but how does one magnify Christ in their body by life or by death? What does that even look like? We can understand being delivered from shame and that God removes such things and he undermines the, the worthless words of those who would seek to do harm. Maybe we can get our hands around that. Maybe we get our hands around that deliverance, but What's its counterpart and its, its fruit, as it were, the, the magnifying of Christ, specifically in, by life or by death? Well, that's a good question. I mean, it's a question that we not ask just for Paul, but maybe even consider for ourselves. How can I do that? Well, again, it well may be and should probably be determined by, well, how does anyone possibly magnify Christ? Let's even put that on the table, not just by precise application by life or by death by Paul or maybe even myself in some great way. How how do you even magnify Christ? What does that even mean? Because to magnify someone or something is to make more of it, to make it larger or bigger or grander. So if you have a right view of God, if you have a healthy Christology, how are you going to magnify Christ? How are you going to make that which is glorious more glorious, grand more grand, big bigger? How could Paul possibly have a proper view of Christ, the exalted Son of God, and claim in any way to ever to magnify him? Or for that matter, do you think you have the capacity to do such yourself? Technically, we're going to press the matter, no, none of us do. Neither did Paul. But what of his language of making much of Christ? Well, this is an old illustration. You may have come across it, but it's a good one. And so we're going to retread it, as it were. Consider the work of the telescope. The telescope magnifies celestial items, moons, stars, planets, comets, right? It it magnifies them. 
itself is quite small, right? I mean, you, you've seen the like pictures of how many Earths could fit inside the sun or how many moons could fit in the Earth. You know how many telescopes could fit in anything? I could put a telescope in my, not my pocket, that would be really peculiar, but I could fit a ton of them in my trunk. I could fit a lot. They're just very small. They're not particularly magnificent, and yet they're functioning to magnify something, something grander. So items that dwarf the telescope, which is itself a simple tool, makes these celestial items more clear. And as such, their wonders and glory are also made more clear, almost as though they were right before you. So the telescope does not make these celestial bodies great, but draws their greatness into focus. Such is the nature of what Paul is expressing here. He was magnifying Christ. He was making his glory clear. He was drawing it into focus for others. And the means for this was not curved glass and a metal tube, but by way of his life and, if necessary, by way of his death. That's how he'll magnify Christ. He will make Christ clear, make Christ plain, make it as though Christ were right here, and therefore magnify him. Paul wanted his life to put Christ's glory on display, and this was the natural counterpart to his being delivered from shame. I'm going to be delivered, and Christ is going to be magnified. He was confident of that. And to be clear, magnifying Christ in one's body by life or by death is not the same as some sensational experience or cobbling of such experiences that end in some fantastic show that, well, how did you magnify Christ? Well, I did this, and boy, it was on the news because it was so sensational. It was so big. And then I died in some fantastic boom of, of glitter and glory. That's not magnifying Christ in life or in death. Rather, even with Paul, it would seem to be rather a plain and rather mundane walking faithfully through life or through death, exercising one's gifts in service to others, exuding the fruit of the Spirit, and demonstrating patterns of holiness. For, look at it this way again. The moon craters, they're so small. I remember the first time I got contact, or glasses and I realized, like, oh, people can see these things. That's, that's fascinating. And then you realize you get a telescope and like, wow, look at that. It's, it's like the crater's so close and you can negotiate it. When you're magnifying Christ, what are you doing? You're making him clear and clear. It's like he's right there in the day-to-day mundane faithful experiences of life. It's like you're the moon. What does the moon do? Does the moon just shine and, and cast a spotlight? Well, it can be really bright, very bright at times. But all it's doing is reflecting the glory of the sun. It's what you're doing. You're being a little moon if you're being faithful and you're magnifying Christ. You're not illuminating, you're reflecting. And if you're still not sure, if such matters are just not enough for you, you're like, well, no, no, magnifying is magnifying and I'm going to magnify Christ. I'm just not sure how yet. Then I would again remind you of Paul's experiences as he wrote to the Philippians. What was happening in his life at this point in time? Well, we have the end of the book of Acts where he's incarcerated in Rome, where he's writing Philippians. And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence unhindered. That's what magnifying Christ looked like in his life and, if necessary, in his death. But if you say, no, that's not enough. I really want to magnify Christ with all boldness. I saw that word in there, with all boldness. Well, then I remind you that this term for boldness is often associated with speech, a preparedness to speak truth without fear. That's often how this boldness is working itself out. So I would say, okay, be bold. Magnify Christ with all boldness. But before you can do that, what are you going to have to do to prepare yourself? You're going to have to study. 
You're going to have to pray. You're going to have to struggle. You're going to have to grasp hold of truth, apply it to your own life, and then, yes, share it with others. Boldly declare it with others. And so, with all humility, boldly declare it to others. Now, we're almost done. I know we have the Lord's Supper. I'm mindful of our, our time together. I'm mindful of what we have left in the text, but we'll, we'll land. And again, being almost done, I, I recognize I bypassed something, and it's not good exposition to go from verse 19, start talking about it, jump to verse 20, and be, pretend like we worked through verse 19. I'm mindful we skipped over some things in verse 19. So let me come back to some of those elements um, and explain why I think Paul had something other than his deliverance from his chains in view here. I want to continue to press that a little bit more. This was in part because I... And, and why did I do that? Why did I skip over that? Well, because I wanted you to see the intimate association between Paul's salvation and Christ's magnification. So whatever this salvation is, I want you to see it's a deliverance from shame, yes, but it's also, it's really driving at the magnification of Christ. But we still need to resolve the nature of his salvation. And to quickly refresh your attention, I did already propose four options for us. I proposed um, the preaching of Christ supports Paul's legal case and will prove to be part of his uh, vindication before man as he's acquitted by Caesar. I proposed this preaching of Christ rescues him from the shame of his malicious opponents. And third option I proposed was this preaching of Christ sees Paul vindicated without shame before God. And then option four, this was the one I would defer to, uh, the preaching of Christ rescues him from the shame of his malicious opponents and vindicates him before God. And again, the fourth option effectively is a combination of the, the second and third. And what was the fourth option again? Because it's hard to follow that just verbally. It was basically this, that he will be vindicated before those who shame him, and he will be vindicated before God who judges all men perfectly. And we're going to do this. We're going to come to this conclusion. We're going to understand how this works, again, now with a view to Job. But as we established early in our time this morning, Paul replicates the exact wording of Job 13, 16 in the Septuagint. And I'm persuaded it wasn't to say, I'm just looking for like language. Oh, Job said something, I'll cut and paste. I think it was a gentle nod to the larger testimony of Job. What was the nature of Job? Well, let's consider broadly the fact that he was experiencing something and he was shamed by those who were friends, those who we're declaring truths in a bad manner, as it were. But even more precisely, let's consider the surrounding context of the quote that he provided for us. Job 13, 13 through 18. We read, Be silent before me so that I may speak. Then let, then let come on me what may. Why should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hands? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. This also will be my salvation, for a godless man may not come before his presence. Listen carefully to my words and let my declaration fill your ears. Behold, now I have arranged my case for justice. I know that I will be declared righteous. Paul knew. I know that we've walked through the, the book of Job and a variety of opportunities, most recently in a new, or excuse me, Old Testament survey, and that was skillfully unpacked for us with a large view of Job and the argument and everything. And, and we, we got it. The reason we did that is we want to get a handle on Job. And we did. I hope that you followed. I hope that you were participating and appreciate the book better. But we also, I think, have to concede that Paul really, really had a masterful understanding of Job. And when he seems to extract a line out of it, it wasn't just some whimsical, oh, that's a, that's a nice way of saying it. I think he's thinking about Job. 
And with that, he knew the tension that was welling up throughout the book of Job and that Job so desperately wanted his case being heard. Remember, Pastor Frank emphasized that Job wanted his case to be heard and he was wholly confident that he would be vindicated, that his experience would be that of deliverance. It'd be one of salvation. And it was a like expression of salvation, of vindication, of validation for which Paul's joy carried over from the joy of Christ being preached even if by men with malice intent toward him, to now the joy of his salvation. He knows that the God who is just and delivers a people will deliver him and that he will know the Lord's salvation, a deliverance from his shame. And in being delivered from his shame, he will magnify Christ. Paul was absolutely confident, absolutely confident that he would know God's deliverance. He knew that shame would not be the final word for him. He knew that, like Job, he would be vindicated before God and man. And as such, he would go on to declare the excellencies of the deliverer, magnifying Christ in his body by life or by death. Now, there was one more most extraordinary statement that accompanies this confident view of Paul's salvation, namely that his deliverance would be through the prayers of his faithful brothers and sisters in Christ and the provision of the Holy Spirit. And you say, well, no, it's the Spirit of Jesus Christ. I recognize that. It's the, it's the Holy Spirit there. And it takes some time to appreciate that. And it takes some time to appreciate, well, wait, hold on. That masterful deliverance that you've been building to and viewing, giving a view to deliverance from shame and the magnification of Christ, we're going to say that was all through the prayers of believers and the provision of the Holy Spirit. How does that work? Come back next week. And we're going to work through how that works. We're going to give a matter that really deserves a measure of attention, its proper attention. Especially because I have pressed and I've pressed and I've tried to press and I'm going to continue doing so. And if, you, if I do it to you, don't take it personal. We'll do take it personal. I'm trying to tell people this. So everybody wants so bad to, to be faithful ministers within the church don't miss what he says. You can't do the work of the Holy Spirit. That part is taken care of. But what does he say? Through the provision of the prayers of the brothers and sisters in Christ, through, through prayer. Paul expects, is confident of deliverance, of salvation from shame, and ultimately for the magnification of Christ in his life or in his death, and some part because people are praying for him. So I think we need to wrestle with that. But as we close today, I would encourage you to reflect once more on the sweetness of, not only on the early days of the church, of the church. We did have some, some precious early days um, that became especially precious January 1, 2020. But nevertheless, um, there were some early sweet days. And, and we can remember that, but the sweetness of the early church. So often people, oh, that we could be like an Acts 3 church or an Acts 6 church or whatever Acts church. And I'm just grateful we got over the hump when the Gentiles were welcomed in. Yay, Gentiles, inclusion. That's good. That's good for most of us. I'm grateful the gospel is made more and more clear and advanced, but there was a preciousness to that early church. And I want to appreciate that. Days that, but I also want to recognize that there were precious days that followed. Days that were marked by hardships and joy and even chains. Days that were seasoned by the trials of life and circumstances that showed time and time again that the ideals and the joy that they experienced at the outset of the church held true. And that Christ was sufficient, and that there's days that we can speak of knowing the Lord's salvation from sin, yes, but also from the experiences that we could never have imagined 
that he would deliver us from, experiences in which, but for the Lord's deliverance, shame may well have prevailed, but it won't because he will deliver, because he's a just and gracious judge. And having known of his deliverance time and time again, we can join the company of Paul and many others, and in such pursue that Christ now will be magnified, be made clear, be made plain, and be made present before others in our bodies, in this temporal sojourning, be it by life or by death. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the um, continued testimony of Paul. We think about when we want the experience of the testimony of Paul, we tend to think back to Acts and him sharing of his, his salvation, um, his being rescued on the road there and encountering the, the resurrected Christ. And, and then perhaps we think about the testimony of his work as recorded through Acts, it's very, very helpful. It helps us better appreciate and understand the epistles and, and many elements of the New Testament scriptures. But we're so grateful that uh, these testimonies are also peppered in throughout the letters because they were personal letters. They were written to people that he, he knew and loved, that he had walked with and served. And sometimes there were letters to those who he hadn't yet engaged, but he wanted to know them. He wanted to know them better. And there's often relational ties to, to others in that region. But he knew the Philippians, and he unpacks what they likely were concerned about. What's the nature of the Apostle Paul's conditions, and what's the nature of the gospel? And so he gave them encouragement. And we were so grateful to see that he was locked in on Christ being preached, and in that he rejoiced. But Lord, we thank you also for the very um, human, very common um, articulation of another expression of joy. He knew the, the burden of, of shame, but he also knew it wasn't his shame and that he would be delivered from it, that you would rescue him from these things and that rescuing him, he would magnify Christ. He would make Christ clear and plain. And that's what we, we testify to warning for ourselves. We do want to be delivered from shame. If we're walking in righteousness and holiness, we trust that you will continue to deliver your people. But we also recognize we want to magnify Christ and that's not some sensational experience. It may happen to be some sensational experience that would be unusual, but it's likely just that people see Christ more clearly because they've seen and experienced and heard and walked with us. And that may be what the, the, the most magnificent expression of, of magnifying Christ looks like, but that's exactly what you've designed. You've designed for us to reflect Christ to others. So Lord, would you be pleased to help us Please help us to, to long for, again, that salvation, that deliverance, for that work that you've entrusted to us. And then as we'll look forward to even next week as we advance further into the passages, but also look here back to verse 19, that we'd be found faithful on behalf of one another, laboring in prayer for the success of these things in one another, for the deliverance that you provide. And so, Lord, we give thanks to you for these things and ask that you be pleased to, indeed, magnify yourself through us. And we transition our thoughts, our affections, our attention soon to the Lord's Supper. And then I know Pastor Matt will lead us well and direct our thoughts there. But I, even now I think about Paul. What was he thinking when he said magnify Christ in life or in death? I can't help but to think that he also had a view to the fact that Christ himself exalted, exalted the Father, exalted uh, the glory of God plainly in life, clearly in death. And because of that, will be exalted. And so we give thanks to you as we remember even in just a short time here. We pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.